Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, the, the election and gerrymandering and politics. Uh, it's election year, but we haven't really gotten into the topic at all. Uh, but joining me uh, remotely from Princeton is Professor Sam Wang. Uh, he is a professor in neuroscience at Princeton University, where he leads a lab focusing on, on studying uh, neuroimaging and big data approaches to analyze uh, behaviors. But simultaneously, he has had a very long-standing interest in elections. You know, he pioneered statistical methods for analyzing U.S. presidential elections in 2004 uh, when he developed tools for aggregative uh, state polls, and then which eventually led to the establishment of the Princeton Election Consortium. Uh, and in 2012, he recognized new systematic distortions in representing the U.S. House representatives uh, and, and thus came coming up with uh, the, the Princeton gerrymandering project. And now he is uh, uh, leading a group of students and scholars to, to study those very, very important issues in our society. So thank you so much for uh, joining me all the way from, from Princeton, Professor Wang. Thank you, Tiger. Thanks uh, for having me on. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is is my good friend uh, Theo Marco. He is a senior at Princeton, a computer science major actually, but uh, one of the founders of Representable.org, which is a tool that helps nonprofits fight gerrymandering by helping them map communities affected by badly drawn districts uh, across the country. And you know his experience with civic tech goes all the way back to high school days when he you know worked on an app that helped hundreds of Romanian voters report uh, fraud and mismanagement during the 2014 Romanian presidential election. So Theo is, is Romanian, just like me, you know, international students in, in, uh, in the U.S. really passionate about those issues. So thanks so much for joining me as well, Theo. Absolutely, Tiger. Glad to be here. Uh, so, Professor Wang, why don't we just uh, get started by, by jumping in? To, I mean, you, you've done so much, you do so many fascinating projects from neuroscience research to gerrymandering to, to election forecast. And you also host the show Politics and Post, which, which is the podcast show that literally inspired me to, to do Policy Punchline. I, wow. uh, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have to talk about that story later. But yeah. <laughs> but, but so, so what, what motivated you to dedicate so much of your time to election issues? Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about what you do and, and what made you pivot from neuroscience research to uh, focus so much energy on gerrymandering? Well, you know, I, I guess I'm like uh, Theo, where uh, I care a lot about government and democracy in my own country, where my own country is the United States. And so therefore, it has significance not only for Americans, but also echoes uh, in other countries because of the uh, current level of influence of the United States. Um, I, I am a neuroscientist by trade. I come out of physics, uh, where we... I got training in how to use data analysis methods to make to find structure and order in data. Uh, I've always used that uh, those methods to study neuroscience. Um, but as a citizen of the United States, I had a strong interest in U.S. politics, and I have always been looking for um, ways to understand U.S. politics through the lens of data. So I I got interested in 2000 uh, before I ever published on the subject. I got interested in the presidential election of 2000 because it was so close. And there's polling data that, uh, that, if you looked at it closely, suggested that that it was all going to come down to Florida. Uh, and I went around telling people that, and that turned out to be the case. Uh, 2004, I got interested in doing something more complicated, which is to build a model on three um, 
swing states, Florida, Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, Ohio. And, uh, and that was, I was inspired to that by a, a friend and colleague over in the physics department, the late Steve Gubser. Um, so the general idea all along has been to use data analytics to find out a clearer, simpler picture of what's going on. And so that's what we might want as a spectator or as a consumer of news. Uh, and then over time, um, you've mentioned a few of the points. Uh, I've gotten more interested in, in using that information to maybe make democracy work a little bit better. So I started as a spectator and I got more and more interested in uh, finding ways to help my fellow citizens use their efforts, donate their money more effectively. Uh, in 2012, I got really interested in gerrymandering because the symptoms of gerrymandering started to become really apparent in 2012. And uh, since 2012, I've had a growing interest in using data analytics to maybe shape policy and to actually take this kind of creaky democracy that that we thought was so great in 1787. And, uh, and you know, it's gotten, yeah, it's democracy 1.0 uh, and, uh, and it's probably time for an upgrade. And so I'm hoping that we can use data to build democracy 2.0. I see. Thank you, Professor Wang. And your main political work right now is with the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. Uh, a group working to promote democracy and end gerrymandering in the U.S. And as you mentioned, you've beca you became interested in this uh, topic back in 2012. Some of our listeners might not be as knowledgeable about the subject of gerrymandering as you are. How do you explain it to a regular person that you just met in the supermarket? Wow, I'm just trying to imagine walking up to somebody in the supermarket and saying, I want to tell you about redistricting. And I, the way that plays out, even without social distancing, the way that plays out is that they back away slowly, hoping to get away from it. Okay, okay let's imagine that I ran into you in the supermarket. Okay, um, it's like this. Um, we think of democracy as being simple, where the person who gets the most votes, hopefully a majority, ends up being elected. And, uh, and that sounds like a pretty simple rule for electing people. But in the United States, there's this unusual wrinkle where for a lot of offices, uh, the boundary lines for where people get elected from are drawn over and over again every decade. And they're drawn because there's a legal requirement to, um, to have each district, say congressional district, have the same number of people, or a state legislative district should have about the same number of people. And the problem with ha having those lines redrawn is that the people who draw the lines are the people who are elected under those lines. And so it's possible through careful drawing of lines to build an advantage either for one person or for a whole group of people. And that, think of it as a closed feedback loop where, where I draw, imagine I'm a politician, I draw my own lines, run for office under those lines, I get returned to office, and then I can draw my own lines. And so there's this self-dealing that's not present in our idealized view of democracy. And what it means is that electeds, elected representatives are no longer responsive to the people who vote for them. Instead of being chosen by their voters, they get to choose their voters. And so by drawing lines creatively, they can say, well, I want these voters. I don't want too many of these voters. I want to take some of these voters and put as many of these voters who I don't like into the neighboring district. And so by packing under, uh, voters of the other party into some districts, I can pack them and reduce their influence. I can use my supporters more efficiently and build influence for my team. And so that way I can um, completely subvert the democratic process by building these kind of um, engineered margins of safety. Uh, and 
this is something that is uh, unusually, uh, other countries have some of this problem, but the problem is uh, in some ways worse in the United States than most democracies. Uh, you just previously previously mentioned that you use data and statistics to stay uh, to study a lot of those issues, and you are uh, you know you come out of physics and you're a scientist by training. So, uh, and from what I understand, the Princeton gerrymandering project is very unique in the sense it takes the mass based approach to to the concept of gerrymandering. So, would you mind just telling us a little bit about what exactly are some of the methods you guys use to 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 study those issues? Sure. Uh, so the way I would characterize the Princeton gerrymandering project is that. We're using um, math, data, and law, uh, which are three separate things. And we're trying to find a way to bridge the gaps between those three things to come up with ways to address gerrymandering using evidence and winning lawsuits or writing better laws or reforming the process or uh, empowering citizens. So maybe I can take an example as to how math, law, and data can work together. Pennsylvania is next door to uh, New Jersey, a uh, great big state, has a congressional delegation of, um, of 18 members of Congress. And Pennsylvania is a swing state. So statewide, uh, the preferences of voters in Pennsylvania is about 50, are about 50-50 Democrats uh, and Republicans, equally split. Up until two years ago, there was a string of elections in which the congressional delegation from uh, Pennsylvania that got sent to Washington, D.C., was 13 Republicans, five Democrats. So despite the fact that it was a 50-50 state from a um, uh, voter point of view, it was a 13 to five state. So that's almost three to one from a representative point of view. So why is that? And how can one detect it? So first off, um, what is, how do you achieve 13 to five? And the way you do it is that the five representatives got elected in 2012, 2014, 2016, three elections in a row, they got elected with an average of about uh, 70 or 80% of the vote. So, so those were Democratic districts and there were Democrats packed into those few districts. On the Republican side, the 13 Republicans were uh, elected with an average of 57% of the vote. So their votes were used really efficiently. So the simplest thing you can do is just compare the average wins and see that the average wins for one side are much more lopsided than the other side. And just comparing those averages, you can do a basic statistical test uh, for anyone in the audience who knows statistics, you can do a t-test, which is just a way of comparing averages to find out whether it could have arisen by chance. And boom, you find out that actually uh, the averages are, are very different from one another. You can do other things like you compare the average with the median. So in this case, the median district is the middle district, so it's obviously Republican. Uh, the average district is 50-50 uh, uh, is because I told you the vote was split 50-50. So the difference between the median and the average, the mean, so it's called the mean median difference, it's another statistical test. And you, again, you can see that there's something that happened there. So that's just using math. Um, maybe you want to know more, you want to use data to inform it. Um, maybe it's just that Democrats are clustered in cities like uh, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and uh, maybe Reading so there, or, or Scranton, wherever Democrats might be found. Maybe it's just that Democrats live in those cities and they just pack themselves. So you can draw maps and mathematicians have done this. They've developed algorithms to draw thousands or millions or even billions of maps. And they can draw many, many maps uh, by taking the, the population data of Pennsylvania. And what they find is that if you draw a map that just obeys basic principles like uh, having reasonable shapes, not being too wiggly in their boundaries, um, not breaking too many cities or counties or what have you, you don't get 13 to five. Uh, maybe you get 10 to eight, but 
uh, um, and you or you get nine to nine. But what you don't get is thirteen to five. And so, thereby using data, it becomes possible to learn that actually this is almost certainly arose by some purposeful process. And it turns out that we get into politics where the people who are in charge of redistricting, this is going to come as no surprise, were Republicans because they were the ones uh, who had more power in redistricting and they ended up drawing a map that returned more of their own party to power than the other party. And so now we get into the question of, okay, how do we uh, use these things? Uh, we on the team at, at Princeton um, did analytics and, uh, and, and published our analysis of the existing map of a proposed map drawn by uh, Democrats of another proposed map by a reform organization uh, we took these different maps and we analyzed them, and we found that some of the reform maps that were offered had shapes that were just as pleasing, not too wrinkly, not too convoluted, um, but were able to achieve a much more balanced outcome between the parties. And so that ended up being helpful uh, to data that was uh, to testimony that was offered by mathematicians, uh, by lawyers, by other people in a case that came in the in front of the state supreme court in, in Pennsylvania, and together those things. Uh, came together and led to a redrawing of the map. Um, and the, in the next election after after the redrawing, uh, that was 2018, the next delegation elected from Pennsylvania was 9-9, nine, nine, nine Democrats, nine Republicans. And so all of those things together, and I should say it's not just us, there was actually a pretty large constellation of people who were really the central players in this. And we, were, um, we offered external uh, analysis. Um, but it was a pretty big... Uh, constellation of people working together to achieve uh, an outcome that treated the parties more fairly with one, with respect to one another, and also did things like um, um, treated communities of interest uh, with some respect and allowed people in those communities to elect representatives of their choice as well. Uh, so why don't we just dive slightly deeper into the, the, the process of, of you coming up with uh, suggestions or advice? It was like, what were the conventional approaches to studying gerrymandering before in, in the sense that, uh, let's say, without uh, Professor Wang and his team and the, 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 all the statistical approaches that we use to study gerrymandering without the data, uh, can people realize that there is this issue? Uh, can, can we raise sort of public awareness uh, through that because, you know, by construction, having more data also inevitably leads to more noises and, and, and other issues. So how does data play a role in, into affecting a political issue like this? I guess the way I would put it is that um, what we do at Princeton on the gerrymandering project is um, a response to technological developments and political developments of the last uh, 10 or 20 years. So it used to be that gerrymandering was mostly done to protect a single incumbent, maybe to just draw a district that was safe for one person. Uh, when gerrymandering was done to protect an entire political party, it was not always very effective. So for example, the very first district map after which the gerrymander was named was signed by Governor Elbridge Gerry in Massachusetts in 1812. And that was a really great gerrymander for his party. But then um, the very next year in 1813, they got turfed out of office anyway and they lost uh, basically control of the General Court of Massachusetts in one year. Uh, and there were things, but there were things that they, didn't, they did not have available to them at the time. Uh, they didn't have uh, stable political parties, and so people were willing to change party affiliations. There wasn't such uh, deep partisanship as there is today, so that was a thing they didn't have. Uh, they didn't have data on how people voted, and they didn't have uh, computer technology to keep track of voters. Uh, and so there are all these 
um, kinds of information and political dynamics that they did not have in the 19th century. And all these things really started coming together in the United States around 2000, when uh, software started being used to draw maps with more precision. Um, and also in the mid 90s is when uh, partisanship in the United States became more intense. And now it's become quite unlikely for people to vote outside their own party loyalty. If you, uh, whatever uh, partisan preference any of us has, it is really rare for any of us to be willing to vote for the opposing party. And th that's a condition of modern political life in the last 20 years or so, um, really starting in the mid 90s. Uh, partisanship and polarization have gotten really bad in the US. So these forces all, really all came together, technology and, um, and, and polarization, and that's created a need. And so the, the thing that we've done is that we're responding to that need. So, so the most partisan offenses in terms of gerrymandering, the most partisan gerrymanders ever have been committed in 2000 and 2010, at least in the age of modern voting. And so the number of gerrymanders has gone up. And we, I would characterize us as being part of that in the sense of, uh, you know, when there's a disease outbreak, then you have more efforts to create, say, ways to respond to that disease, whether it be, you know, ventilators, vaccines, treatments. There's a demand that that arises to deal with that. And so what we're trying to do is uh, uh, we're trying to develop treatments in the sense of legal approaches. I guess everyone's thinking about coronavirus, and so that would be analogous to uh, to coming up with ventilators. Uh, and then uh, this analogy is going to completely fail in a moment. Um, and, and so another would be um, coming up with ways to make sure it doesn't happen in the future, and that would be in the category of a vaccine. So the idea is to come up with legal structures or tools that citizens can use to help prevent the next round of gerrymanders from happening in 2021. That makes complete sense. Um... So PGP has done tremendous work in addressing this critical bug in democracy because it pioneers uh, this interdisciplinary approach where map making, statistics, and law can work together to fill a current legal void, uh, as you described in your mission. And the fact that the public can visually see the impact of gerrymandering using maps and all the statistics that you're creating uh, goes a long way in convincing them about how grave this issue actually is. So I guess the greater question is, how big overall can data and science play in awakening public awareness on issues otherwise often explained by non-scientific approaches that could be much less effective? What does this say about the way that political science and political philosophy may evolve in the future? Yeah, this is a good question. So Theo, the, the way I would think about it is this. So ordinary people don't have access to all these technical tools, but they know things in their hearts. So they know that they have a national government uh, that's seemingly unresponsive to their needs. Depending if they live in a state like Minnesota, sorry, not Minnesota, if they live in a state like Wisconsin or Michigan or North Carolina, they see the same thing. They see a state legislature that where seemingly no one ever changes, uh, gets ejected from office, laws don't get passed that affect their lives. And so they don't know all this data stuff and all this complicated stuff. What they know is, look, Flint doesn't have clean water or our state didn't take the Medicaid expansion. Why is that? Or Jobs are leaving my state, and no one seems to care about that. So that's what they care about. Um, one of the difficulties with this topic that we're talking about is that it's at the heart of all that. By drawing lines to make government unresponsive to people, there is this defect in the heart of democracy that makes it harder for voters' views to be felt. And I think one difficulty there is just like you don't feel well and you go to the doctor, and the doctor's got lots of specialized knowledge. And you hope the doctor can help you, but you don't necessarily want to go to medical school to get that help. 
one challenge is how can people with technical information develop tools to help normal people get a better response out of their governments? Um, and that's going to be things like helping citizens weigh in at public hearings and say, look, don't draw a line down the middle of my town. Okay. And so Theo, your project, representable.org, right? That project is to help people weigh in and make their voices heard. Um, it can help by um, uh, helping citizens, say, get worked up and sign a petition to get an initiative on the ballot to take the power of redistricting out of the hands of legislators. Um, Katie Fahey uh, and uh, a number of other people worked together in Michigan to uh, Katie Fahey, Nancy Wong, uh, a number of other people in Michigan, mostly women, um, rose up and built an organization, Voters Not Politicians. And they took that resentment and feeling of powerlessness and they turned it into a legal reform. And so what was needed there was somebody with legal knowledge to take the problem, craft a solution that then prevents the problem from having in the future, then used a mechanism of government, the, the, the voter initiative process in Michigan, and turn that into a reform that hopefully will change Michigan in the future, that will make legislative legislators more responsive, and hopefully, eventually, help Flint become less likely to have dirty water in the future. And, and, and that's a long road. And the difficulty is, and, and now I would say that voters in Michigan did a big part by rising up and, and forcing the change. Lawyers and legal scholars helped them craft that change. Now it's time for data to create resources that citizens can use to talk to that commission and say, please don't leave us behind. Make sure we're represented. And so the whole thing is a pipeline uh, of influence that's previously been mainly in the hands of, of legislators behind closed doors. And what we'd like to do is do whatever we can to create an alternative pipeline that's in the open that everybody can see, that can be used to create change uh, with transparency, uh, with sunlight, um, and with uh, and putting data tools into the hands of citizens. You know, I was just talking to uh, Theo right before the interview, and he's involved with representable.org, which he, uh, has done a lot of work with students to to bring in you know those kind of uh, bottoms up um, forces in terms of addressing those those issues rightly as you you said uh, but for for me and an outsider w w w it just seems very intuitive to me to say why uh why doesn't why isn't there a top-down solution for example why doesn't the supreme court immediately address this why can't there be a group of people that anal that 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 see the issue and recognize the issue and just say we got to stop uh we got to fix this bug in american democracy uh, so uh, uh, you know, I, oh my you, God, you, where do I start? Okay. <laughs> I mean, because your, your, your team did, did publish this paper titled Laboratories of Democracy, Reform, State Constitutions, and Partisan Gerrymandering, in which you actually described how multiple, uh, despite multiple opportunities to address the issue, the Supreme Court has declined to take action on, 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 fixing, uh, on fixing this bug. So wh why not? They are not partisan, right? They don't need to get reelected. Did you just say that the Supreme Court is nonpartisan? Well, uh, let's ignore that for a second. I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to. That's uh, I. I used to think that. Um, so let's see. So the way I'd put it is this: the Constitution says that Congress has powers to regulate redistricting, and it is, as far as I can tell, possible for Congress to regulate the practice of drawing districts. Uh, I mean, there's much more to say about that from a legal standpoint, 
but Congress could act. And so, for example, there's a bill that passed the House of Representatives, H.R. 1, and it's now dead in the Senate because Mitch McConnell, the majority leader over there, uh, doesn't want to move it. Uh, and so, so Congress could act, but hasn't. The Supreme Court could have acted, but in a 5-4 decision, they decided not to. Anthony Kennedy, a conservative on the court, seemed open to it, uh, but he, uh, he waffled and then he retired. And then his replacement, Brett Kavanaugh, was much less sympathetic. Uh, I would characterize the state, uh, the state stance of the Supreme Court as being um, that they are willing to use the law to deal with some racial gerrymandering. So if a race is packed uh, under the Voting Rights Act, they are, are in certain circumstances willing to intervene there. But in the domain of partisan gerrymandering, uh, that's a new domain of uh, case where they'd have to integrate evidence. They'd have to develop legal standards. Um, they said they, we, they were unwilling to do that and they wanted to leave it to the states. Uh, and so it kind of is reminiscent of, um, I don't know, say, again, talking about coronavirus, uh, having a national government that is in some ways not in a position to help, uh, either through unwillingness or inability. Um, and what they've done is they've turfed it off to the states. And so in the case that uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, uh, he basically left the way open for individual states to do the job where the federal courts would not. And so uh, even though there is a pretty large body of social science evidence for exactly how one would measure a gerrymander, how one would identify it, uh, legal lawyers have been working on it for a while. Uh, they basically stepped back from the whole thing and they decided to just throw it all into uh, the states. So even though there's a problem there, uh, traditionally the Supreme Court has not gotten into this problem. And so even though conditions have changed the way I said before, they are um, unwilling to respond to those changed conditions. Uh, in your paper, the same paper we, we talked about, you also argued for uh, a, a federalist approach for eliminating partisan gerrymandering and, and some of your ways of bringing math and law and data all together. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about how you see your way could affect some changes down the road? The way I would put it is this. I think advocates for voting rights over the last 50 years in the United States have been very focused on the Supreme Court and federal law to protect them, whether it be racial rights or other kinds of voting rights. Uh, and we're entering a period where the stance of the federal government and federal courts is very different. And consequently, it would be appropriate to think of states as being a source of rights. And so traditionally, states' rights is considered a bit of a dirty phrase because it's a way of protecting, say, states that want to protect racial prejudice. That would be uh, an example of how the phrase states' rights has been used. But state constitutions contain all of the same principles that have been used to uh, protect voting rights in federal courts. Uh, the First Amendment, where you are protected by association, and that might protect you from being penalized by party. The 14th Amendment, uh, equal treatment under the law, e equal justice under the law. These are principles that are found in most state constitutions. And we wrote a law article that's in the, um, in the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law, where we said that, look, states are laboratories of democracy, and one can find ways to address these same issues in state courts. Uh, if the state court is sympathetic, uh, a, a court like Pennsylvania or North Carolina or, uh, or other states, you know, perhaps New York State, these are states where courts seem disposed to protect voting rights. And so one possible way to address gerrymandering is to use courts. Another way would be to use uh, the referendum process, I told, uh, or rather the voter initiative process. Half of states have a process by which voters can put a petition on the ballot in November. 
And so that's another approach. Basically, the the best approach at this point is to figure out what the best approach is in each state to improving the strength of democracy and what the right approach is, is going to vary by the state. And so we can get into exactly what to do in any individual state, but people just have to be prepared to be much more flexible in their thinking than to uh, hope for the Supreme Court to be uh, to be a, a protective parent who will guard their their rights. I see. Let's pivot to coronavirus and the implications for voting. Um, what are the Princeton, what are Princeton gerrymandering uh, projects' uh, priorities in the era of COVID nineteen, and how has the pandemic changed your strategy, the way you function, and the way you think about the next uh, year and a half when it comes to gerrymandering? Coronavirus has affected every sector of our society, and democracy isn't any different. Uh, in Wisconsin, a few weeks ago, we saw uh, an election that was held mostly by mail. 70% of ballots were sent in by mail. That was a record, like an incredible record. Usually they send in 10% of ballots by mail. And so Wisconsin just did a great big experiment in whether they could conduct a, an election smoothly by mail. They did. Uh, so I think one thing that's going to uh, affect broadly is ways of securing our elections in time for November. So that's just the big picture. We're very focused on that. Um, downstream redistricting is going to be affected because the census is slowed down. The Census Bureau is talking about releasing its numbers later than usual next year in 2021. That has knock-on effects because uh, states have to have that census information in order to accurately draw lines. And so any state that has elections in 2021 is going to have to deal with that. So New Jersey, Virginia, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, these are states that have odd year, odd numbered year elections, and they are going to be under significant time pressure. And so I think our tools, such as representable.org, uh, other uh, tools for drawing lines, uh, for dealing with data, are going to be really important in streamlining the process to make sure it's as fair as possible and is conducted as quickly as possible. Even with all that, it is entirely possible that elections in New Jersey and Virginia will have to be postponed because there just isn't enough time for census numbers to be released and the primaries to occur and for there to be a campaign and for there to be an election. If you add up all the times that are required under New Jersey state law, for example, um, it takes you past election day. And so uh, so there's a lot of time pressure in certain states. Uh, and, uh, and so those are the states that we're very focused on in terms of immediate impacts. Uh, and there may be impacts as well, um, things like whether there's an accurate census count for determining representation in other states as well. So there, there are uh, pretty big consequences for coronavirus, uh, mostly focused through the census. I'm an outsider, so I'm not quite familiar with sort of the, the, the relationship between census and, and gerrymandering and, and mail-in voting. Why does it matter so much that the gerrymandering is, is an issue in election years? Wouldn't the focus be on... The law requires that districts have equal... The law requires that districts have equal population or close to equal population, and the way you determine that is through the census. And the law also, uh, court precedent currently says that you have to do it using the actual census. You can't use statistical methods to estimate uh, populations and so on. And so an accurate census count is the starting point for redistricting. So for example, let's say that there's some community that is undercounted by 20%. Uh, you would have to draw the district that much larger in order to capture the same number of people according to the census. And so let's say you had, I mean, to pick an example, uh, let's say there's a community of people who are afraid to respond to the census because they're concerned about deportation or whatever, something like that. Like people who are not in, who are undocumented uh, in the United States. 
if they're undercounted, they still count as people under the census. The census and the constitution don't care about citizenship. But if those people get undercounted, then they get underrepresented. And so that would be an example of a way in which an undercount affects people. So a census is absolutely required for drawing districts. And if it's done inaccurately, can hurt people who fail to be counted. And because of this requirement for districts to be, to be of equal population, there has to be redistricting every time the census is done. And the census happens in years ending with a zero. Therefore, redistricting happens in years ending with a one. And so therefore, we got redistricting next year. Uh, and, and you would uh, say that, you know, the implications for whether it's mail-in voting or whether the implications because of the COVID-19 are, are not necessarily partisan per se, but rather mostly focused on local legislators and local context. Right. So, so everything I've talked about is about census and drawing of lines. Uh, voting itself is a separate topic. And so, so coronavirus has these two very different effects. One is on the census and on line drawing. The other is on the conduct of elections. I would say in some ways um, it, would, it would have been better if Wisconsin had not had to have anybody go to the polls to vote. But I think one thing that we learned from watching the Wisconsin election was that turnout can be pretty high and be conducted by mail. Um, they put off counting the ballots until a week after the election. And so they put in a time delay to, so that people wouldn't get too excited about partial counts, which is a good thing. But I think that Wisconsin basically got a practice run at, um, at how to run an election under conditions of pandemic. And so I think one thing we learned from Wisconsin is that it's possible to have a reasonably fair election with high turnout, even during a pandemic. And I would say that it, Wisconsin has a head start and it would be a good idea for other states to also learn from Wisconsin and make sure that they have a way to have a plan B. So there's an alternative to in-person voting. That means maximizing mail-in voting. Um, it means finding a way for, to find workers to work at the poll station safely um, without fear of them getting infected. It means uh, having a way to count votes and have the counting process not become chaotic. So I think that the, it's a pretty clear route for how to conduct voting fairly. And, uh, and I hope that other states will learn from that example and, and find a way to conduct elections in an, as orderly a way as possible. So it seems that, you know, many have talked about this trade-off between, you know, opening up the economy, maintaining social distancing, or, or uh, letting people to vote or not, because in-person voting could be, you know, impose certain dangers. Uh, but you know, in order to preserve our democratic institution, you really have to go in person. But, but it almost seems that mail-in voting would be a perfect solution that, that would totally work. So, so, Mail-in voting is an awesome solution. It has bipartisan support. Uh, there are members of Congress, so elected officials don't always like it, especially on the Republican side. But voters themselves are A-OK with mail-in voting. And I will say that there is research that suggests that, um, that mail-in voting doesn't help either party. On average, it doesn't do anything to help Republicans or Democrats. So in principle, it's a good theoretical solution. Uh, the difficulty is getting legislators to go along with it because legislators don't always, I mean, honestly, it is not necessarily in legislators' interest to have high turnout in elections from a purely self-interested point of view. And so the difficulty is getting elected officials to go along with it. Uh, and that's going to depend on um, secretaries of state across the union. Um, that's probably the, the, the biggest factor, governors of states. And so if those people are willing to have some flexibility about it, I think there are ways to do it. And I think the thing to emphasize is that elections are administered locally in the United States. And so um, at least the way we're doing it now, state by state has to be the route for securing elections. So it can be done with national law. 
but we've already gone over this. Uh, there's this tendency towards inaction at the national level. The so it seems that the, the silver bullet here is really local organizations. And in that key, how do you think we can generate more attention towards this issue, specifically gerrymandering? And what are the best ways to attract people to this issue without engaging in uh, any sort of like partisan bickering, for example? Um, redistricting reform is, uh, has bipartisan support and survey after survey, it attracts substantial support from both Democrats and Republicans, and also from people who don't affiliate with either party. So I would say that to the extent that redistricting reform can be made not a partisan issue and an issue of making responsive legislators, that's the number one route. Uh, voter initiatives are a great way to do that. Uh, we got redistricting reform in the last election in Utah and Missouri. Those are not democratic states. Those are Republican states. Uh, and so it's certainly possible to get voters to go along with it, uh, to persuade them of the merits of it. So I would say that's the number one route. Uh, another is that I think that uh, broadly speaking, uh, voters sometimes don't think of the local routes to reform. Uh, people should run for office locally. People should look to their communities. Uh, I know that when I get asked about elections, I often get asked about national elections. But honestly, I am super interested in the state legislature in Trenton. I'm super interested in uh, local members of Congress. Acting locally is a powerful way to get change. I, you know, I just, I'll just make this personal. It is only with great effort that I can get a national message out because I have to compete with all the other messages. And we have this big conversation nationally, sometimes not constructive because it focuses on things that are not that substantive. Um, but I find that dealing locally, if I deal with officials in Trenton, they are more responsive. If I communicate with officials in North Carolina or in Virginia uh, or in Michigan, it is possible to have conversations there. And I think that voters, um, I think especially progressive liberal voters don't think of local government as a way to, to make change, but it is a powerful way to make change. Last year, my guys got a law passed. We got a data transparency law passed in New Jersey to make election data publicly available within 90 days of the election. I would never expect to have any success passing a law like that nationally. But, you know, Assemblyman Zwicker helped us with it. Senator Greenstein helped us with it. And, uh, and they, they wrote the bill and it passed and Governor Murphy signed it. And now there's data transparency in New Jersey. Over and over again, I think that people underestimate local and state government as a way to make change. Uh, and so this year over at election.princeton.edu, we are constructing resources to help people find ways that they can make a difference locally. And I, I really think that, that, that I can't emphasize that enough, that local is a, a great route in our federalist system for making change. Uh, absolutely. I, I know you have to go soon. So we'll just maybe wrap it up with, with this question. You know, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I just want to ask you at the end, what's the punchline here for you? I, 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 you know, whether it's for gerrymandering or for... Uh, the, the election year. I know you also uh, talked about acting local. Would that be your punchline or is there anything else you want to say? I think that would be. I think that people should discover their inner federalist uh, and discover ways to act locally, whether it be uh, by making change through redistricting, which is the big prize because that affects the next decade, uh, or this fall's election, which is um, uh, in some ways a big prize, but it's a prize specifically for this fall. So whether you care about the presidency whether you care about who controls the Senate or whether you care about who draws the lines for the next decade, all of those are ways uh, where acting locally matters. Uh, we didn't even talk about the Senate. Uh, there's close Senate races in Colorado, Maine, Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, other states. 
Uh, all of these are states where people can make a difference acting locally. And I think there's just a huge opportunity for people who want to make a difference with their words or with their capacity, technical capacity with data and technology. I think this is a really good time, um, despite the difficulties of our democracy, it's actually a really good time to uh, to at least try to make a difference. And so I hope listeners will think about that. Well, I'm sad that our time has to be cut short. Um, it, it, we could have gotten into so many more fascinating discussions about, about those things. So maybe when it's closer to the election date, Theo and I could invite you back and we can maybe have another conversation about some of those uh, other other topics you would like to, to touch on. Sure, so, absolutely. So you, you're going to have to head off to politics and polls. I just want to have to emphasize at the very end, you know, Policy Punch-Out was very much a, a brainchild of, of politics and polls. You know, I was, I was so inspired by the way you and Professor Salazar did your podcast. And I... I That's so nice yeah. to hear. I, <laughs> you're an inspiration to me. I, I, I'm pleased that it made an impact on you. I hope that, uh, you know, we're always trying to keep that fresh. And, uh, and I hope that uh, I'm glad to hear that you're, uh, you're making a difference and you're informing people uh, your style. And, and really hopefully we can that. continue the dialogue forward. Thanks so much, Professor Wang. Really appreciate Thanks you joining so us today. Yeah. Thank Talk you. Soon. All right, Theo. So we just finished our interview with Professor Wang. I want to do a little bit of post-interview interview with you as well, because uh, we barely got to ask some of your thoughts on those issues. Uh, what do you think of the interview, first of all? Yeah, thank you, Tiger. No, that's very flattering that you want to you wanna get my in, insight as well on these issues. I think Sam Wang's thoughts were very interesting. I was particularly um, excited about what he said about allowing local communities uh, to govern themselves and, and solve these issues regarding gerrymandering. And I think really that's the key in this case um, across the United States, especially after the Supreme Court's decision last year. So I think he's a very, very interesting uh, person. I think he has, he's incredibly smart and, and I really enjoyed listening to all his thoughts. What about you? Uh, no, I loved it. I, I, exactly back to your point about localization. I mean, it's so important to involve in local voices and, and you know, there's so much uh, talks these days saying, you know, a centralized tech giant or a centralized system just isn't as robust of a system compared to a more decentralized one. You know, the more centralized you are, the more fragile you probably are anyways. Uh, but I also want to ask you a little bit about how Representable com came together. I think it came uh, out of a student project that you were working on or something. Would, would, you mind, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your journey? Absolutely, yeah. And, and just for the listeners, in case they might not be as familiar with Representable, Representable is this tool that allows uh, nonprofits across the United States create maps of communities that then can be submitted to redistricting com uh, commissions for the purpose of highlighting potential cases of gerrymandering or adjusting the maps just so that everybody has representation. And I'm happy to go into that later a bit more as well. But as to our story about how Representable came together, we're actually quite proud of it. Um, so as I mentioned to you uh, before the episode, we took a class in the computer science department that was focused on building projects. And our goal was actually to go beyond Princeton and build something that could actually bring some sort of value to people, not just the Princeton community. And through our professors, we got in touch actually with Professor Wang just last year in the spring, and he gave us the initial idea for Representable. He started talking to us about how mapping specific communities can be incredibly powerful for the process of fighting gerrymandering. And this was actually before the Supreme Court's decision. So in hindsight, we actually, by focusing on this specific problem, 
we were ahead of the curve there. Um, so I, I, we started working on this. Uh, he gave us the initial idea. We, we came together, we started presenting it. And then from there on, we started partnering with different organizations or for Representable. And I actually want to speak a little bit about my own interest in this, because as you've mentioned in the beginning, I'm Romanian, so I'm an international student here in the United States. And actually, that makes it's, it's, it's very linked to my, to my heritage, because the strength of the U.S. democracy has been incredibly powerful as a stabilizing force almost in Romania since the 1989 revolution, even before. Um, for those who in the in the audience that might not know, people in Romania and in many Eastern European countries looked up to the United States with hope that they they would actually come and help those countries before the revolutions of 1989, because most of those communist regimes there and people tend to forget this were not necessarily a result of elections; they were a result of the way the Allies split up the split up Europe after World War II and after defeating Nazi Germany. So my grandparents, my parents, they always had this hope that the Americans would come, which is, you know, something somehow transmitted to me. And I think that I really do believe that there are many democracies out there like Romania's that wouldn't be as stable without the United States showing the results of what it actually looks like to have a system like this running. What are the economic benefits of having the system running? What are the freedoms and so forth uh, benefits. But, but I also want to want to make a point there that it's, it's very personal to me. So it, it really hurts me to see that there are communities in this country now that are not getting the representation that they might need because politicians are trying to, uh, you know, ensure that they get reelected year to year by drawing gerrymandering, gerrymandered districts. So that's the story behind Representable. That's sort of my story a little bit. Uh, it's it's an exciting project, and I, and I think it it has a lot of ties to, um, to who I am as a person. Actually, no man, that's a beautiful story. I mean, also very inspiring. Just like you said, uh, the ripple effects, the trickle down effects of American de- democracy, are are so important in ensuring world order and, and such. Uh, but I just want to quickly clarify it up a little bit more for our listeners. So the way representable works. Uh, to put it in a very intuitive way, is that say I'm some resident in this town and I really care about some project in my area, like a water dam or watershed or something, uh, I would go to your app and then basically draw that on the app and say, this is the area that I care about or this is the, the thing I care about. And then you would help gather that data and then see, uh, do those areas, do the mapping that that, that reflect people's actual interests are those maps aligned with the current electoral maps for congressional districts or whatnot uh, is that how it works that's right that's right and i just want to make it clear that we are not we are providing a tool here that allows uh that doesn't sub- directly submit these uh maps to the electoral commissions we would hope we would be able to do that but at this point we don't know enough yet about what that will look like in in 2020 and 2021 so later this year um but it's exactly that we are looking. We are allowing communities to map themselves based on their economical interests, or what are their shared cultural or even historical interests that bind them together. Where are their cultural activities, community centers, uh, and and what makes them unique? And these are some of the most powerful things you can use uh, in order to to show that a community really needs to be together and 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 have their voices heard together. Um, and 
I just want to go a bit deeper on that. What we're actually doing here is we're reducing the friction with a public comment system that is already being used by these electoral commissions when it comes to redistricting by essentially guiding the user to, to create maps and submissions that can actually be used by these electoral commissions. So it's not just it, it, so we are actually giving a, a voice to everybody, not just the kind of consultants and the kind of lawyers that have the ability to draft public submissions that can actually be used. And if you think about it, and I'm sure our audience is, is aware of this, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen a public comment system, you essentially get your name, your address, your email address, and, and a blank text box. And as many of us are aware, having a blank text box is very intimidating. So we're, we're reducing the sort of hurdle associated with that by simply guiding the user, asking them about their economic interests, cultural interests, what, are, what is their map, we're, we're showing them landmarks and so forth. And, and we're allowing actually to go even deeper, organizations on the ground to coordinate these, um, these uh, essentially campaigns for getting public submissions and comments about redistricting um, because we also want to make sure that everybody is represented, both liberals and conservatives. We're just offering a tool that, that helps both and, and helps all types of communities where it's not our role to tell uh, commissions, oh, you, you should draw a community a certain way. We're just allowing them to submit them directly to the commission so their voices are heard. Uh, th that totally makes sense. And I... I... Uh, was especially impressed by the fact that you are essentially revolutionizing the way, uh, you know, traditional feedback submissions are being made, right? Before people type in a, some kind of text box and say, oh, th th this is the watershed that I care about. That is the project I care about. But now you can actually have a graphical representation. It's more intuitive. It's easier. Uh, but the first question I would have, the common country of my mind, not, not to play a devil's advocate here, is that, what if only 10% of the people in the community actually use the app and then they uh, have all their voices, you know, heard, mm -hmm. but then they might not actually represent the 90% of the community, right? Yeah, that's a very good question. And you can go even further to, to play devil's advocate. You can say, well, there's now a clear incentive that there's a system that can be taken into account for redistricting and the incumbents have all the incentives available to them to, to gain the system and make it easy for themselves to, to ensure re-election. And the truth of the matter is that that's something that's been on our mind from day one. And the, in developing a tool, we, we realize that while it can be you know, very easy to say that look, it's neutral and stuff like that, we have to provide some sort of safeguards for protecting against fake submissions and gaming the system. So our strategy there is, is quite nuanced. And to be completely frank, it's something that we're monitoring as we're moving forward with rolling it out. Uh, we don't claim to have all the, the answers from the get-go. This is something that, that we're working together with our, the organizations on the ground to figure out. But our main premise is that we are working with organizations and community leaders from so many backgrounds, everywhere from churches to the mayor's office to uh, uh, organizations that are specifically focused on redistricting so that everybody gets to have their voices heard as they would already in a public common system so that, you know, if there is something that, uh, it, first of all, it ensures that we have all the sides uh, represented 
in in the discussion. And actually, to to be quite frank, it's actually quite easy uh, to 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 create communities that are bound by not necessarily political aspects, but by like actual economical and cultural ties by the way we're designing the form. But to go even a step forward, let's say that you have a bad actor trying to submit a bunch of communities that are fake or like are trying to skew the system. We have our our goal right now is to provide the best tools to the organizations that are monitoring the submissions to actually, you know, keep them on the website. We don't want to. We, we want to see that we we don't want to sh- uh, keep anybody out of the conversation by any means. But they can distance themselves or unapprove, as we call it, the submissions that look false or look uh, like they might not necessarily be uh, legitimate or might not necessarily uh, uh, fit the community. But then we also sh- we also like have our own you know global map sort of where we can see everything. And even though they're not as trustworthy maybe you can still see like well wait a second some people uh, posted all of this stuff is that is that a reason like is there a reason behind that are they just spammy posts do they they all seem to have like coming from the same ip address maybe there's something about that we can and and we're also doing some some work in the, based on based on flagging them that way um but the the sort of tldr there is is that we are this is an ongoing process we're very careful with uh because you know it can actually impact people's lives and we're very careful to loop in all the stakeholders so that the incentives are no longer, oh, I'm, oh, you know, I want to make sure that it's just us here. Everybody's here already. We just want to bring our story to, or we just want to present our story as it is. Um, well, I love this discussion because we're finally getting to my favorite topic here, content moderation, which yes. is <laughs> you being a platform, uh, I mean, having the ability uh, to pick and choose or or delete um, certain inaccurate mm-hmm. comments that seek to to skew the distribution of the opinion. Uh, so so let's go a little bit deeper on that. So it sounds like you guys have a really really good system going on right now. Uh, and, and I think a key component is local organizations. Is that you actually work with independent local organizations so that they can take all those inputs and then make a fair judgment on it. So there is no a quote unquote algorithm that is behind all this that that is uh, making a decision on which uh, opinions to consider more or less. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. There's no the way we we're automating the process of submission. We're not automating the decision. The process of decision. The, the yeah. content moderation. Okay, that's good. You 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 prepped for this question and this this interview. You know I was going to come at you very hard. So uh, on the topic of content moderation right Let, let's because there is extreme danger when it comes to skewing the the opinion we're uh, having fake news and inaccurate information mm-hmm. uh, like what we're seeing in the COVID 19 crisis these days is that absolutely uh, people yeah. can go on the uh, go on twitter and basically be in a, a public forum and smear the, the experts and challenge the, the experts in often legitimate ways but the experts would get tired right if you have 100 people challenging the experts saying why are you saying this the, the expert would just say i'm not gonna be on Twitter anymore, and then it's the public forum get the world. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, do, do your local organizations get tired of uh, ever see a massive influx of information at all? How is how has the experience been working with them? So so far, we are in the early stages of rolling this out, and I'll preface it with that we we don't claim to have all the answers yet because we have or, or so far our users have been doing it mostly for for testing the application for just you know smoothing out any potential kinks in the in the system uh it's it's been at that level um the way we are rolling out we are 
not going to see that kind of traffic where people will be overwhelmed for a while. Um, and our hypothesis right now, and that, that we're sort of like testing is, where, where in the funnel is it best for organizations to actually like um, approve and disapprove these, these entries? One model that we're testing is actually using some sort of whitelist. So all these organizations have already the emails of their users. You can submit an entry to an organization's organization only if you're already added on a whitelist. Or, you know, the, a, a random person can also submit an entry to that organization and they can approve it afterwards. Another model we're, te we're testing is, you know, a global map. Um, and all these things are for the purpose of seeing, well, are we first of all going to see that kind of like, um, you know, well, are we going to be in a position where we're not going to have enough bandwidth to sort through all of these things? If so, then we can lean on our whitelist model. Uh, if 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 that's not a problem, then we can also lean on the fact that we have a global map, so that you know there are a bunch of you know Americans are very individualistic and and they like to contribute to their communities, but don't necessarily like to be part of an organization. So how do you give those people a voice as well? And we want to ensure that everybody sort of has a way of being uh, of being heard. But if you know if it becomes a problem, we're going to lean into the organization sort of whitelist type uh, submission and then just make it easier for people to be vetted by a local organization. Well, I, I just think that there might be a decent amount of citizens out there mm -hmm. uh, who are probably, I, I don't know, maybe like me, I live in Princeton area, I care about local politics, whatever, but I might not care about specific on grounds projects that make me uh, be able to draw up a sensible map or, or such. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about uh, the, the relationship between uh, actually t giving you use, useful information in, in deciding uh, where to draw the maps compared to just me caring about some local issue that has nothing to do with gerrymandering with the map drawing at all. So how do you incorporate those opinions into the model or do you not consider them at all? I think that's a great uh, question, Tiger, because I think one one thing that we explored in the beginning then then we sort of moved away from, uh, and, and I want to sort of stress in this conversation is that Representable does not focus on um, drawing electoral districts. If your community of interest, which is the technical term that we're using here for your the, the community that you're interested in, just includes the school and the grocery store and the church or something like that and the watershed, that's good. That's that's all we need to know from you. And really, like, if there are more people like you, we're 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 gonna we're it's gonna be very apparent that that's an important community that has to be respected. And even if it's just one person like you, you're going to be taken into account um, when electoral commissions are redistricting, uh, are drawing new district lines or considering old district lines. Um, we don't want people to draw necessarily district maps on, on representable. We want them to draw their own maps, what their communities are to them. So if you are a Princeton University student, for example, that cares about living off campus, let's say, what what does that look for you? Are you are you on Nassau Street? Are you or on next to the? Are you going to these grocery stores? Are you going to these restaurants? Uh, are you going to classes in these buildings and so forth? That that's all that matters to you, and that's all that we're interested in helping you submit. Uh, absolutely. How many? Uh, how much data would you actually need in order for such a feedback system to be effective? I imagine. Because so many people talk about big data these days. I mean, I, I, I don't even know like how you define big as, as big data because I'm not a technical person. But also, I, as I kind of mentioned in the interview as well, by, by having more data, you also include more noises, right? 
So how do you actually filter out the, the noises to get the signal? So uh, mm-hmm. I suppose it's a two-part question. One is how, how much data do you actually need? And, and, and then when you get the data, how you make sure you get the signal? That's, that's a good, another good question. So um, our data is actually very, um, we, we are very respectful of people's time because we know that this is something that they're doing on top of their other work and you know concerns and stuff like that. So we simply ask all the users who are submitting communities on our platform about the economic interests, uh, cultural interests, activities, whether there's something unique about their community. And these are all short answer, text answer questions. You can write more if you're interested in, but pretty much you can say, you know, we have an activity center that we all go to on Sunday. We have, I don't know, a monument, the Princeton War Monument that we all care about and it's really important to us. And at the same time, you know, it's not our county county that it has control over it in terms of electoral um, representation. It's the other county, so that's not fair. Um, economic interests, you know, the the water line or to the lake that we that's in our county is really important to us because it provides fishing and uh, different leisure, leisure activities and so forth. That's that's so it, it's very high signal, low noise in that sense. And then when it comes to the actual map. Uh, what we're focusing on is just draw, you know, we're using a polygon, essentially a square, just like select the places that are important to you. And that's all we say. Um, it's, 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 it's not the kind of big data where, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of log entries for every click and uh, movement of a mouse and, and character that you type into a window. We just have exactly the kind of data that is uh represented in that that represents your community uh, so another question of mine would be uh why aren't more people using this i mean it sounds like a great idea why aren't you guys pushing this to every single you know quote unquote local community across the country so that you know we can solve the gerrymandering problem <laughs> yeah no absolutely so that's actually our uh, like our strategy right now as, as as i mentioned earlier is to work directly with local communities. And that's actually really important. So we're taking it state by state, local community by local community. We're starting with a bunch of people, uh, with a bunch of really interested users in uh, Virginia and Michigan uh, to to do just some pre-rollout stuff to make sure that the application works and that there aren't any sort of bugs or things that we have missed out. Again, we're coming towards it as from the perspective that we don't have answers to every question. So user feedback is incredibly powerful at this stage for just making this tool as useful as it can be. And then in terms of next steps, um, we already have, through the Princeton Gerrymandering Project and uh, Schmidt Futures, a lot of support in terms of national level outreach. So we'll be going from state to state and, and community to community to, to and, and use our, our network to, to reach out to these people and get it into the hands of, of uh, everybody during the next year or so. Um, we're, Seeing a few delays, we've, we've seen a few delays with redistricting because of COVID-19. Um, but at the same time, this tool is now more important than ever because you can literally just do this from your you know, home. You can just use your, t- take out your mobile phone, go to representable.org and draw your community in a mobile friendly way. And that reduces a huge amount of friction that used to be associated with having to canvas neighborhoods. And, and that's still important for representable if, it's, if it can be done, but it may, gives everyone uh, the chance uh, to, to have their voices heard.
you just said that this tool is more important than ever. Do you think this is the way that we're going to solve the gerrymandering crisis? And by that, this, I don't mean this particular app per se, but the fact that data and tech are involved, right? Professor Wang is a huge advocate of using data and, and visualizing those things uh, to, to, to really represent the issue in a visceral way so people can understand it, can get more actively involved in a more easy way, uh, or as you put it, in a less friction, frictional way. So uh, how, how do you envision the relationship between politics and tech? Uh, because I think there is so much backlash, uh, the, the, the tech clash, right, against the tech giants, how they're trying to interfere politics. I mean, Facebook didn't really play a, a positive, leave a positive impression in terms of how tech could influence our politics. Uh, and, and I would love to get a little bit more of your thoughts on, you know, the relationship between between tech and policy. So to your question about tech and policy, Tiger, I think that's that's a great question. And especially given the tech clash and all the conversations that have been happening around the United States and around the world, really, you know, the European Union has had a really a bunch of really interesting stances on this about fake news and, and false information and so forth. Our perspective on this is that we are we are even more sort of bound to to making sure that we uh, our inf the information on our website is actually helpful and not damaging to the process because instead of you know Facebook sort of softly changing people's minds about an, an election, this can actually change the way district lines look for the next ten years in a very uh, direct way. So our approach is. We don't want to, and, and, and at the same time, though, we don't want to be, you know, uh, the equivalent of a, of a product manager or a tech lead in, in Silicon Valley or New York or, or Washington, D.C., making decisions for all these local communities, because we don't, we, we can't know what's best for them. We, we don't want to, this is exactly to Sam Wang's point from, point from earlier on, localized communities know best uh, what's best for them, and they have the power to actually uh, change things for the better. Um, so in order to balance those sort of two things, our approach is to, um, first of all, give both the tools to have people to, to give the people a voice, but also give them the tools to fight. And, and when I say give them the tools, I particularly, I'm particularly referring to organizations, give organizations the tools to fight potential spam and uh, potential uh, false entries. And at the same time, also make sure that like, you know, both conservative and liberal voices are being heard because we don't want to just be a, a liberal echo chamber or a conservative echo chamber where we're only hearing about uh, the interests of one particular community, but nobody else is, is, is heard. Um, so having said that, I think my, my take on this, this entire situation is that, you know, it, it, it's a process that, that as we're rolling out, we're, 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 we're trying to tackle from different perspectives. We're seeing what works best. We're being extremely careful. And to your question earlier on, the reason this is not everywhere yet is because we know how powerful it can be. Therefore, we want to make sure that the way we're rolling it out is right and doesn't do more damage than, than uh, help uh, for these communities. And on a meta level, just about what I think about these, these questions about you know, uh, platforms censoring or uh, looking at content, fake news and stuff like that, that's a really difficult conversation. And I, and I, I think there, there are many good... Uh, points on on um, on the side of you know censoring fake news and and making sure that they don't uh, influence people's perspectives. But I'm also wary of 
as I said earlier, having a product manager who doesn't know anything about certain situations in, in somewhere in, in Silicon Valley and San Francisco making decisions that can affect communities in the long term. Um, and I think ultimately the best way to, to tackle these things uh, is just by being being open and being uh, frank about what can be done, what cannot be done, and giving the people and, and also for these organizations to offer people and, and themselves the tools to fight these things as effectively as possible without silencing anybody. And when I think about silencing people, I particularly have in mind the example of the Seattle um, study in, 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 in February where they started testing people for coronavirus way before other organizations. And they sort of broke the rules there. But at the same time, they sounded the alarm in the US, which you know, finally maybe woke up many of the people that, that started working on this uh, earlier than, than they would have woken up otherwise. So I think there's also power to using social media to sort of like fight authority figures when those authority figures are not moving fast enough. Uh, and there's, of course, there's, there's a balance there. And, and it's a balance that's in a constant uh, sort of, that needs to be kept in balance all the time. And, and it's, it's actually a hard problem. I mean, I'm, uh, I, I, I struggle with it every day at Representable and, and I'm, I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of, of people that struggle with it at, at, Twitter and at, at Facebook. <laughs> well, Facebook just uh, created this uh, Supreme Court. I don't know if you read of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, they they put uh, you know twenty really important people, uh, intellectuals and politicians all together, including Nobel Prize P Peace Prize winners, and, and all together into this panel that will help with their content moderation in the future. But a lot of people are saying that might not be the sea change that we hope for. I mean, it's it's hard to say that those changes are hard to come by. I don't think just by putting a group of people and say, oh, those are all diversely minded people. Uh, we've incorporated our voices and now they can all sit together and make some decisions for us. That that will be the the, the, the future. I don't know. I, 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 that's I, an interesting point. I, I, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's that's a really interesting case study. I'm really curious to see where that will go. Um, we'll see whether it's going to become some sort of rubber stamp committee for uh, everybody's actions. And we're, we'll see whether they're going to be sidelined or they're actually... They're going to have some teeth to them. Uh, I know Mark said uh, that he was going to take into them. Oh, there. Mark, you go, go, you, you, you call him on the first name basis now. <laughs> I don't, I don't, uh, Mark. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> well, what are you saying? <laughs> I, I, that's you don't want it to be a rubber stamp of just Mark yeah, yeah, yeah. running his own thing. Yeah, totally. I don't know, man. Kara Swisher, the the editor at large for uh, Recode, she said this could just be a less effective version of United Nations. <laughs> like yeah, you like you brought all those like <laughs> important people together, and then you say, okay, now you know have some policy proposals, whatever. Like I don't know, man. I, I, the cynical side of me comes out sometimes when reading about those things. Is that uh, there's so many think tanks and and uh, but yeah. it's precisely the the moderate think tanks that that produce the most cliche reports and keep saying the the the, the same things about the same ideas, and then everybody says we need to be inclusive and and whatever. And then uh, you put all those buzzers, yeah. Everybody. Yeah. And, and there are, and, and that's why there are a lot of uh, people that say, "Screw the establishment, screw the moderates. We're, we're going to have radical changes," and that might not be the solution. So who knows? Uh, yeah. I, I, no, I don't a, know. That's man. a good point. I mean, look, there is a lot of BS in institutions right now, and they're, they're, that's something that that these institutions have to realize. Like a lot of people, and and this is sort of like I know that our your listenership is 
uh, you know, exactly the kind of people that end up going into those institutions. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you gotta after, we serve at the pleasure of the institution. Yes. You gotta, like, the, the, it, it's incredible. Like, this is what happens when for like five to 10 years, all you do is serve uh, those kind of like, you know, reports that, that sound trite and, and, and claim for, you know, call, call for more inclusion and more diversity without having any teeth to them. Or, you know, let's stop global warming and we're all shaking hands congratulating ourselves but like in the meantime we're, we're pumping coal into the atmosphere like it's some sort of steampunk uh movie so you know that that's something i think that 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 we should all like especially our generation should take away from this entire COVID crisis this is what happens when institutions have nice looking reports but no teeth to them and when people are not actually uh, people are not actually thinking about how to solve the issues at hand rather than just, you know, put a report that that solves the issues at hand. And, and I'm making the quotes uh, signs with my, my hands there, so when, I, when I say solve in the, in the latter case. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about someone with your background, someone who studied computer science, who are politically minded. Uh, you kind of have the best of the two, two worlds. How do you encourage uh, people like you to get more involved in those te- uh, contemporary affairs. I mean, uh, because it is very hard for tech people to talk to policy people and vice versa, right? We, we see that struggle in DC and Silicon Valley all, all the time today. Yeah, man, I will never forget the, the Mark Zuckerberg hearings, uh, 2017 or 2018, when, you know, how does Facebook make money? I'll, I'll never forget that. Uh, <laughs> but to, to get to your question, I think the most important thing that that somebody can do is actually realize the importance of working on the ground with these organizations, whether it is a newspaper, a local newspaper, a local voting organization, an advocacy group like the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, um, some place where you can actually not just think about these issues from uh, an academic perspective where you get to read nice uh, looking papers that, that make a bunch of uh, assertions based on uh, really generous assumptions, uh, you're actually, you get to see that there are so many issues that people are not thinking about solving that you could solve just by knowing how to make a website. Oh, these people are literally faxing themselves each other like maps of communities. Maybe I can make a way to actually map these communities more easily or take a picture of the paper and send it, like, you know, set up a Dropbox system for, for them. Uh, you can start getting into into con- getting into contact with all these issues that otherwise you would never see just by reading papers and and or like news and and re- reports and stuff like that. So really, the biggest superpower and and the biggest thing that you can you can sort of assume for yourself at this moment, uh, and that will I also I think arguably have the biggest impact on your career, is work very closely on the ground with organizations so you can see their problems and then think about solutions for them. Um, and there's nothing that can, that can make, that, uh, make up for that. Um, it's, it's really just being involved. And, and, and if you are politically minded, not just going on CNN or New York Times or The Economist and write, reading the articles and being outraged, but actually going to the organizations that are quoted in those articles and being like, hey, how can I help? How can I, like, what, what do you need? Uh, is there anything that, 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 that you need done? Uh, and I think that's, that, that kind of civic-minded uh, attitude is, first of all, very aligned with what Sam Wang mentioned earlier, but it's also something that we need to revive. I remember taking a, 
uh, class of philanthropy here at, at Princeton in, in my freshman year. And one of the first things I realized was that, wait a second, like there's there's almost like this idea that there has to be a superhero president or a superhero uh, philanthropist that solves all our problems in one big swoop. And that's just not how, how the world works. There, there's a patchwork of things that, that people need to work on. And really, the, it, the solution lies within all of us um, and, and just caring about your neighbor and, and you know, reaching out to, the, to that the organization that's across the road and, and, and seeing if they need any help with anything. Well, well, Theo, you're preaching the choir here. I completely resonate with the sentiment here because often we ignore the simple problems but urgent problems and, and we look at those entrepreneurship, whatever projects as sexy and, and that's the stuff that we want to do. Um, you know, I was reading this. I mean, think about the, the person that invented wheels on suitcases, right? I mean, for, for centuries, people just carried around their suitcases without wheels, right? And then somebody just basically put two wheels on the suitcases. And nowadays, that literally lightened up the load for so many travelers. And, and I think that's a simple problem. That, that, mm-hmm. that, and I think there's so many such problems, like you said, you know, like those, uh, commu- those organizations were literally just faxing themselves uh, those maps. Why can't we just do it in a more intuitive way? I, I think uh, for civically minded people uh, and, and people with your technical uh, technical skills like yours uh, to get involved in solving those simple problems is much, much better uh, than this kind of purported uh, system of entrepreneurship that we see on, on campuses nowadays, where it's all about uh, talking about return on investment. Let's talk about uh, what's the equity share? What's the what's the yeah. uh, valuation of the company? I, I don't know. I, I feel like I mean, you you are pretty actively involved in the Princeton entrepreneurship ecosystem. Do you, do you like it? I don't know. I, I feel like <laughs> I, I don't mean to be offensive here, but most of the stuff that comes out of those they're yeah. not that helpful. <laughs> no, absolutely. Oh, so th- th- I have to, a few thoughts there. Obviously, as 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 you mentioned, I've been involved with the entrepreneurship club from from really my first days at at Princeton, uh, and it has been an extremely amazing experience for them. I think I've met some of the most exciting and and interesting people I know on campus through through that. Extremely club. Is, is extreme word, <laughs> but, yeah. but go on. <laughs> but I do think that there is there can be a lot of BS in these things, right? Uh, there can be a lot of BS because there's. Um, you know, there's always things that you can work on that don't have that much impact because you're coming at it from the perspective of, I want to solve this huge problem in the world. You know, I was, I was just thinking uh, about uh, how people think about startups at, at the college level. And it's always like a problem that they have many times, which is good, but it's not a problem that they can actually, like they, they battle test with other uh, people outside of the college bubble. And I think this is why many times, like it seems that the, the solutions that people are working on uh, just don't feel that that real. They feel like more like invented solutions because I don't think they they make the. It, it's very hard for a college student to to get out there and, and actually test it with, um, you know, potential potential people who are not within their scope. Like you, all you're doing every day is socializing with people who are within the same narrow age range as you are. Same relatively same sociological socioeconomic background uh and it's it's very hard to really get a good understanding of of how to to work on more impactful problems or or issues that way i i totally agree with you because i think it's the important thing is that your intention and your starting point should always be from the place of i want to help solve a particular problem rather than i want to be the hero here changing the world 
-hmm. And I think that the intention is often not pure and, and, and the impure intention ends up uh, becoming purporting up your ego and just, it becomes ego inflation and, and competition. You know, the saying, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, it's sexy. It, it's yeah. just so cool. For, it's like a badge on your shoulder. It's like a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm on a sports team, you know, like, uh, like people almost treat this pitch competition thing as, as a sportsmanship. Like, let's just chill out. Let's, you know, like actually solve I agree. some problems. But so, so all, all hands to you, man. This is it's truly awesome what you guys are doing, taking small steps and, and addressing concrete problems. Uh, and also being very mindful of those those issues. Uh, Thank you. So, uh, so, so at the end, Theo, what's your policy punchline here? What's that's your punchline. I, I sort of felt that I was coming towards me as well. Well, uh, before <laughs> I say the punchline, I just want to give a shout out to the rest of the team. I think that's very important. This is representable is not me. It's actually a team of five Princeton students. I'm one of them. Um, We've been working on it from the beginning, from last year. The other people are Lauren Johnston, Kyle Barnes, Somia Aurora, and Pretty Iyer. Uh, big shout out to them. Representable wouldn't be where it is today without their help. Also, big Thanks shout for out. only bringing them up at the very end. You, you, you yeah. didn't bring them up at the beginning at all. <laughs> I just want to make sure that their their names are. That's 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 on me. I hope I'm not gonna get uh, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, Sam Wang. You know their their support is is invaluable, and the Schmidt Futures Foundation for for their help with this project. Um, and in the terms Schmitt's, of like, uh, future foundation, that's so. So Eric Schmitz is getting involved, huh? It's, uh, they're they're just. I think uh, they're just helping uh, the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, and that trickles down to us. <laughs> yeah, the and big then, tech giant is coming. It's is, is sprawling towards you, Theo. You better watch out. Yeah, uh, I, I I I really think that yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> you don't have to respond. It's fine. I'm just teasing you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and in terms of my policy punchline, um, I really want to call onto, onto our generation, especially having seen what's happening with COVID-19 right now. We need to sort of look at the world and, and get involved directly with these issues that are, um, you know, affecting local communities. And, if, if, and that's how we're going to find the most exciting things to, to work on. That's how you can actually, you know, if you really think about your ego and, and if you really want to become that sort of superhero person, I'm convinced that the best way is to start from the ground up and actually solve people's problems from the ground up. Um, and ultimately, that's also going to bring you the most... Like I, I feel like since I've sort of abandoned this idea of like trying to solve big issues from, from the get-go and focusing on smaller things and, and just like trying to bring value to people, I just felt much more, I don't know, happy with my life. I, I, I know that when I'm pushing some code, I know it, it, it actually impacts somebody in Michigan or in, in, in Virginia. And there's nothing that can that, that can balance that. I don't I don't think I felt that in, in any of my other internships or or, or work. Uh, so I, I just want people to give it a, a try and also realize that you know that's how future. I I, I think I don't want to I want to get off my soapbox because I, I don't know if, how much authority I have to say that, but I don't think that that's how the the next generation of leaders is not going to come from people who have necessarily the nice sounding reports, but the people who have been on the ground and have been able to affect change uh, from the ground up. Well, why, why don't I get your prediction then? What's your prediction for uh, the Facebook Supreme Court? What's your prediction on uh, the gerrymandering uh, issue? On the gerrymandering issue, I think, um, I, I do really think that this year um, we're going to see finally maybe the boldest move for nonpartisan uh, redistricting that that the United States have seen have seen in in a long time, and 
I hope that Representable will be a huge part of that. Uh, I'm excited to be a part of that. Uh, but I, I do think that this is going to be the first sort of like offensive uh, that will bring people their representation again. That's great. Let's let's make some real changes happen. Well, this is all very uh, amazing messages, CEO. Thank you so much for joining me again for for uh, educating me on those matters and for spreading those positive messages to our audiences. Thanks, th thanks so much. No, thank you, Tiger. This is a phenomenal podcast, and uh, thank you for flattering me to have me uh, have a, do a little segment with you. I, I, no, no, no. Hopefully, we can do some more. You know, we, no. you taught me so much about tech, about those issues, and I think we agree agree on so much. Uh, we also disagree on some. Who knows? I I, I don't know. It would be, be great to get, get into some more conversations down the road. But uh, thanks again. Well, uh, how can people learn more about you, your work, uh, Representable? Uh, just a quick shout out to, for, for you and your team at the at the end. Yeah, so uh, Representable is, is available on representable.org. Um, you can you know make an account today, actually, and try out the tool. Give us any feedback. There's a feedback form there if you have any thoughts. Um, and... I I'm thinking about or I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. So, you know, you can look me up on Twitter. You're trying to be more active on Twitter? Bro, dude, do not the policy puncher is not here to promote this. I thought you were gonna bring up your thesis, dude. <laughs> well, I, that's where I was gonna bring my thesis. That's where I was gonna bring my thesis because I just don't have trying to find the best way to, to share that. Um I can, yeah, I can what, what's the Twitter? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to say my website then. I, I don't want to... No, I, no, no, say your Twitter. This is all going to be part of the podcast. This is, uh, our banter is very interesting. Yeah, I, I, for so, our audience, I just always roast Theo, but but no no actual harm so you intended. Can, if, you, if, you, if you want, uh, I actually forgot what my Twitter... I think it's Theo Marku uh, on Twitter, and then TheodoreMarku.com on, on my, is my online uh, presence that uh, will get some updates soon because I actually just finished my senior thesis that I'm very proud of, and I'm thinking about working on a bit more on brain machine interfaces and speech neuroprosthesis. So uh, like Sam Wang, I also have my, my interest in neuroscience and the combination with uh, the, the sort of CS, the boundary between CS and neuroscience. Dude, that sounds scary. Gerrymandering and brain interfaces. <laughs> dude, I think we, should, we need to take you out immediately, <laughs> dude. That's the way to protect our earth, dude. Well, what are you going to do with all this redistricting stuff, man? I am scared. <laughs> No, honestly, I, I I don't think you have anything to be scared of because my my results from my thesis were that uh, it's it's harder than it thought it would be. <laughs> well, it's great talking to you, Theo. Thanks again for okay. for joining me. Really appreciate it and really enjoyed it. Thank you as well, Tiger. Have a good one. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Punchline. Uh, that was uh, my friend Theo Marku, who is a senior at Princeton studying computer science. Uh, doing this wonderful, wonderful project called Representable. Uh, you can find him on, on, on Twitter, on his website, theomarku.com. Uh, learn more about Representable on representable.org and uh, learn more about the Princeton election uh, project on, online as well. So uh, thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, 
donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.